Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Operam, operam, which is of course Latin for Achtung, Achtung. I mean, honestly, I mean, talk about talk about scraping the linguistic barrel. This week in 19- I don't think we've had it before, though, have we? Haven't no, we, we haven't, though. We haven't, we haven't, though. No. It's our Vero, we have not had it before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which used to puzzle me, because well, you, you will have done Latin at school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kaiser had some jam for tea, Pompey had a rat. Yeah, exactly, all that. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because we, we, it was used to sort of, that was always one of the sort of, Facts about Latin was the fact there was no word for yes, and you sort of think "itar vero" is supposedly is meant to be yes. Isn't oh, it? How, can they, how can they language like not have a word for yes? Just, just well, what do you think they did? Just nodded. They just did that. They, they, they had a word. They had a word for yes. <laughs> they had a word for yes. It's just schoolboy Latin was a nonsense. Anyway, um, I've got that off my chest. Well, it was finally. definitely that. Definitely that. Definitely that. Forty years. It's Latin taken me. primer. <laughs> do you remember that little Latin primer? The slave called Britannicus to make us feel like we were connected to the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can relate to the slave because he's from Britain and he's called Britannicus. My favourite, my favourite asterisk is asterisk in Britain. It's just a complete sublime genius. Yeah, Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's brilliant. What is it? it? Your your room may be larger than my garden, but my pylum is stronger than your sternum. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Genius. Um, uh, the, yeah, yeah. the colonel, the colonel. Um, when I was a kid, he used to have. A, he used to regularly have to go to France for work, and he'd right. always bring an asterisk back with him in French. Well, the idea, yeah, that'll test you. Well, the idea being that you know that would improve my French. So what I used to do was at school, I'd get hold of the English translation and basically learn it and cheat and cheat. <laughs> have you ever fest- have you ever fessed up? I you think he, knew, he busted These me at the time. Secrets. I'm certain he busted me at the time. Because, you know, so much of it's colloquial. I'd, I'd come up with an English... I'd come up with yeah. the, you know, the, the, the Anthea Bell or whatever her name was. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, translation. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. anyway, this week in 1945, Adolf Hitler ordered a scorched earth policy across West Germany to slow down advancing Allied forces. This became known as the Nero Decree after the man who infamously let Rome burn in 64 AD with Hitler in his bunker. Albert Speer claims he chose not to implement the Führer's Decree. Let's not forget, we only have Speer's word for any of those encounters, don't we? Yeah. So there were one, people, though, who were hurrying up, up to the salt mines at Altazay desperately yeah. trying to stop them being all the yes. artwork being destroyed so that yes. did happen uh, um, that did but 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 the, the, those the infamous spear meetings with hitler the one-on-one meetings he had right at the end we've only got spears word what for what happened and spear was working awfully hard at um distancing himself from from uh you know the fact that he was arguably trying to become one of Hitler's successors right up to the last minute. Anyway, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And characteristically, we uh, digressed even from the scripted opening <laughs> sentences. Well, yes, I mean, and you, and you, you, I mean, it's great to see you because you've, um, oh, you've had the plague, haven't you? Yes, I, yeah. Yes, Wednesday. I was feeling very weird on Wednesday and I thought, I'll take a, I'll take a Covid test. 
just to be just to be sure. And and I'd read someone on Twitter saying, "Oh, you've got to leave it. You've got to leave it the full quarter of an hour to be absolutely certain." So I did, and I came back, and there's a bloody red line. And then I really was not a Thursday or Friday. I was I was pretty ropey. I sort of went deaf on Friday. Yeah, um, we can still uh, taste. Uh, no, that's interesting. My sense of taste has not been affected, but I've had everything. I've had it. He's done everything. It's sweats and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, because when like, I spoke to you on Saturday, I think you were you were sweaty, really sweating badly. Um, but uh, and I couldn't concentrate and all that sort of stuff. Although I did, that has recovered. So I've done my I've done my reading. Yeah, well done. So you back, are you back on the road this week? Is that the plan? Yeah, we start again. We we should be back on the road. Uh, where are we this week? We're in Nottingham. Uh, no, Nottingham. No, no, Nottingham, Nottingham was last week. Was yeah, which was one that we had to move. Um, so no, we're in Warwick, Warwick Arts Centre, which is co- in Coventry, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for those who want to be confused, extra great hall on Saturday, and then we're in Cheltenham on Sunday. Okay, uh, so a nice triangle. Yeah, a nice little triangle, and that's two shows in Cheltenham, which will which will. Put hair on my chest, or remove it all, depending on uh, how, <laughs> how fit I am for that. Anyway, um, we've got some parish notices before Jim and Jim and I get stuck into what we want to talk about. In the the past week or so, um, we have Ways HQ have been fighting off a full scale mutiny by independent company members over the lack of a curry van. We have Ways Fest twenty twenty two. Now, last year the curry van was well was like a sort of heroic last stand. Um, where they they were almost it was like Rourke's drift the curry van in a way they were overwhelmed by the numbers but still held them off heroically um, and delivered delivered curries to the, the the curry hungry some members have been metaphorically clambering over the wire and around the production compound such uh, such as the angst at the lack of samosas and paneer tikka masala but today we can announce that late night negotiations in smoke filled rooms have resulted in a breakthrough. Curry will be returning to We Have Ways Fest 2022, which is... Yes, a- but it's not it's not just curry either. I mean, there's a there's a broader range this year. So um, yeah. from from yeah. an eating point of view, we've got pie and mash as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, oven-baked pizza, um, you know, yeah. bread oven, stone-baked pizza, that's what you call it, isn't it? Stone-baked um, pizza. Stone-baked <laughs> pizza. Um, fish and chips. Yeah. Uh, coffee shops, all the rest of it. And then on the yeah. interesting development on the bar front, so not only have we got interesting yeah. ales, we've also got a wine bar this this time that is yes. also going to be selling Calvados. Oh, dear. I well, know, I think but, you know. I think I know what's going to happen to me. Um, yes. And also, the programme is nearly... Uh, we nearly put the finishing touches to the programme, although it's yep. subject to change. Um, uh, and... Uh, it's a, I think it's a fantastic and varied programme. And we've got some interesting tangents too, I think, to add yes. to what we're trying to do. Put those out like breadcrumbs when we know what they are. Yeah, um, yep, we uh, absolutely exactly. will. Because uh, you sort of get, you, I mean, putting a thing like this together, it sort of gains a critical mass, doesn't it, Jim? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I, I'm, I think it's shaping up really, really nicely. Uh, and in all its component parts so we've got you know three venues this time for for, for yep. talks and discussions yeah um but also what we're doing on the in the arena i think is sounding really really good you know and if i yep. if i just give a little hint which is um kind of all arms operations yeah um not a battle but seeing them moving seeing them yep. in, moving into position and then moving forward yep. Yeah. Um, I, I think it'll be amazing to see a kind of you know troop of Shermans with infantry, with artillery, yeah. with reconnaissance yeah. vehicles, yeah. all together, as they would have been in Normandy, nineteen forty-four. I think that's that's going to be sort pretty of, exciting. That's what we're aiming at, isn't it? That's what we're trying to trying to achieve. That's what we're trying to do. Off. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, today we are launching Kit Off Twenty Two. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know, this is a modelling competition. We did a, we did a, we did one um, in the height of uh, the pandemic with people sending in their models, um, uh, uh, which was great. Which was great fun. Um, uh, so uh, this year, what we're doing is all proceeds are going to the um, DEC DEC um, Relief Fund, helping people suffering in Ukraine. The rules are really simple and we want loads of you to get involved. You can spend a maximum of £30, a maximum of £30 on a kit. It's £10 to enter and all proceeds are going to help the people of Ukraine. I'm also going to, because I've got a burgeoning stash of unmade stuff, I'm going to put a couple of kits into the stash as well, which we'll do on Twitter um, uh, at some point. It's £10 to enter. All proceeds are going to help the people of Ukraine. The deadline to send pictures of your final model build is the 31st of May using the hashtag... Kitoff, K-I-T-O-F-F, on Twitter. Entries will be judged by Jim and I, but more importantly by Simon from Red Five, Red Five Models, who is the podcast's official modelling expert and a tremendous fellow to boot. More information can be found on our Twitter account this week at We Have Ways Pod, um, uh, and we've got some really exciting prizes planned. Um, so please do get involved. Kit There's off. going to be a few air fees being pulled by tractors, isn't there? If you can get the two kits for 30, under thirty pounds, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're only allowed to spend thirty quid with kit because otherwise, otherwise we'll have this appalling sort of um, uh, accelerationist thing with people spending a fortune. It's all for um, people in Ukraine who obviously, evidently, need our help at the moment. Um, now we've a message from Canada. Um, uh, we received this extraordinary message from a listener in Alberta, Canada. She calls herself Country Dreamer on Twitter, and here's what she said about. An event called If Day. Now, I'd not heard of this. Hi, James and Al. I enjoy listening to your podcast. Back in 1942, on February the 19th, there was a mock Nazi invasion in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. It was quite realistic and was done to sell bonds. The prairies in Canada were homesteaded by large numbers of Germans, mostly Mennonite and Hutterite. Unfortunately, this event did not help with the prejudice towards anyone of German ancestry. I can imagine not... Bloody hell. My grandmother is from the Manitoba German community. While she does not remember If Day as she was too young, she does remember anti-German sentiment. They were no longer able to speak the language. Some chose to change their names to be English sounding. Their phone lines were tapped. Gosh, the phone lines were tapped because the Nazis were trying to infiltrate Canada's Mennonite communities. Unfortunately, a few families did return to Germany to support the Reich from what I've read on the subject. However, there was a lot of hatred towards anyone from the German communities, some even ending up in labour camps. Most of the Canadian Germans wanted to live peaceably and had been living in Canada for decades at this point with no ties to Nazism. I was thinking it would make an interesting topic for you. This if day is controversial in Canadian history. I don't know if there was everything like that in the UK, though I, they did, I think, do it in some towns in the US. I think it's relevant to our present times with anti-Russian sentiment. and This would make an interesting discussion. I should point out that in 1942, they did put warnings out in the newspapers ahead of time. However, in the poor commu- surrounding communities, the people spoke little English and were very poor. Seeing a plane with a swastika flying around and Nazi officers marching through gave them quite a fright. It's amazing none of the actors got shot. That's from Country Dreamer in Alberta. I've not heard of that. That's extraordinary. No. Amazing. Pretty improbable, the idea that the Germans would invade Canada. I mean, that's your... That's a that's your what if run amok, isn't it? Really, it is. But but uh, I mean, if you're seeing sort of planes with swastikas lying around uh, around and people speaking German in German uniforms yeah. with with yeah. weapons and stuff, are you going to stop and go well, rubbish? Yeah. That's unlikely. Yeah, you're just going to go. Holy moly! The Nazis have arrived, aren't you? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, it's really? it's an interesting interesting sort of propaganda. I mean, it, in a way, a weird way that reminds me of the you know Orson Welles' War of the Worlds thing. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Although there's there's debate about whether that did cause a panic or whether that was um, hype. 
at the time. Orson <laughs> Welles a bit was of spin good. Doctoring. At, yes, Orson Welles was good at hype. Um, he was uh, very, very good at that. Uh, and and fa- went the day well. That was another one, wasn't it? So well, that's a, a movie. Yeah, but that, but, 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 that's a movie. That's yeah. a movie. But 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 even so, it's a, it's Thor Hood with Thor Hood with a Bren gun. Yeah, that's what that is. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, and they um, discovered they were German, didn't they? Because of the lines through the seven. That's right. Which I've always done, but I'm not German. Yeah, yeah. I've just yeah, always well, done it. Jim. Well, you'd be you'd be thrown in jail as a fifth columnist now. What are you doing? What are you What are you doing in here, Holland? Oh, I put a I put a cross on one of my S's, old chap. Oh. <laughs> yes, and an umlaut over the air. No idea you uh, were the Hun. <laughs> but but we thought we'd talk about logistics today, didn't we? I mean, I'm sorry. I've been I've been on in full digression mode today. Maybe it's because I'm out of my sick bed. <laughs> Li- life is good. <laughs> no, well, I'm just so happy to see you in good form. I mean, it's great. Back to your normal old self. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, I. I thought, I thought logistics would be interesting to talk about because obviously a couple of weeks ago we talked about, about the encirclement of Kiev and then last yeah. week we talked about um, the getting across capture the of, 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 yep. of parts of Ukraine and the Dnieper battles and all the rest of it. And I was thinking you know, one of the interesting features about what is going on at the moment is, of course, is of course, there's a logistical failures by the Russians. And actually, logistics is, uh, you know, it's that point, isn't it, that... that when we're we're assessing other nations' militaries or other organisations' militaries, we tend to talk in terms of tanks and jets and numbers of yeah. and SAMs and nuclear warheads and troops on the ground and all the rest of it. But what we don't do is actually analyse whether they've got the capacity to use those and how yeah. and what their logistic base is and what's I, I think. But, you know, but we're not the first person. The first people have done that after all because. No. Because the thing, the thing you directed me to read last week was this extraordinary book um, uh, about Barbarossa. Um, yes. Operation yeah. Barbarossa and Germany's defeat in the East. By David Stott. By Stop. David Stott. I'm obsessed with and, this guy. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. Also, I've been in email contact with him. He's really nice. Really? Yeah, he's really nice. Right. He's well, a really good bloke. We've got to get him on at some point. It's fascinating. Isn't because it? Just... He ba- well, and the, the, I mean, you know... D- d- We'll, we'll talk about what we think in a minute, but he lays out he lays out his stall. He basically says no one's really had a proper sniff around the planning for Barbarossa mm. and a, a, or its execution. The, or, well, uh, first of all, the planning and then the execution. Yeah, the, the historiography, historiography is meager and has also been subject to the sort of buffeting waves of of post-war German historiography, post-war Soviet histori- historiography. Which sort of moved it in all sorts of directions, and and he said, and then you know NATO, NATO historiography, of course, and he sort of he basically kind of says, first of all, he says, I'm not, we're not going to give you any of the Russian side of this at all. It's a, this is a book about the German planning. So whatever the whatever the state of the Russians is, isn't the point. It's what the Germans think the state of the Russians is, which is absolutely fascinating. And I also think what's really interesting as well is. Um, is is it? You know, we've talked about Adam Tooze and Adam Tooze's idea that you know that it's economic pressures that force Germany into, you know, uh, making the decisions they make. And he kind of takes that on and goes, "Well, I don't know about that." And and I, I think that's really really interesting because he sort of says basically Barbarossa is this incredible piece of double think where the Germans think the way to make sure that the British don't have the Soviets on their side. To win this war, because they know 
their appraisal, the appraisal is basically if the British can get the Soviets in, the British are waiting to get the Soviets in. They're trying to get the Soviets in the Americans in any way they can. So the way to make sure the Soviets don't come into the war is to knock them out of the war, is to, is to involve them in the war. And you'll knock them over because that'll be easy, which is so much of how the thinking goes. And that'll be all right. That'll be fine. They're rubbish. Yeah, they're Slavs as well, and they're undimensioned. They're Slavs, and they're undimensioned, and their their army's crap, and it's been purged, and and all this sort of stuff, uh, which 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 Stahl basically says hangs in the account more than actually how say the Soviets were doing in Finland or any of that. It's more to do with a general attitude and old attitudes that even predate Bolshevism of, and of, all of that. Underestimating them. Yeah, exactly. But but but, 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 but this idea that the idea though that the way you the way you make sure Britain doesn't get what it wants, which is the Soviets being involved in the war, is to involve the Soviets in the war. It's like ah, the, the, you're, like this is the level of thinking that's going on at the heart of it, and it's not just Hitler who thinks this. It's it's Halder. It's all sorts of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're um, they're yeah. they're all completely on board. Well, and all this. the planning teams in the OKW, and, and, and I, I think know, one has to understand. One has to understand that the OKW, although it's incredibly sensible to have a, a combined services general yeah. staff, and and the OKW is the overcommando de Wehrmacht is the first one. It's not a combined forces. It's not no. a combined forces general staff. It is the mouthpiece of Hitler. But the people who are doing his bidding, particularly at this stage of the war, are completely into the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Uh, on that logistics thing, I mean, the whole the whole German way of war, this idea that you smash your enemy very, very hard at the point of point of impact, the Schwerpunkt, yeah. and then you yeah. and then you surround them and annihilate them very, very quickly. Th- that is completely inbuilt i mean that that that's yeah. prussian all the way back to the you know to the 18th well, it's century they, it's all it's and, and what they did in the first but and it's what they did in the first world war if they got the chance you, you know. yes it's, it's, but, it, but so it is absolutely part of of what they do yeah and it works obviously brilliantly in 1940 but key to what they do in 1940 and I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely going to come straight back to 1941 but yeah. but i think 1940 is really, really interesting because in 1940 KCLO, you know, the, the attack on the West, yeah. absolutely inbuilt to every part of the tactical plan yeah. are logistics and the yeah. logistical plan. And, and, and for the spearheads, which obviously, you know, the, let's say the, the number one spearhead is Panzer Group Kleist, which includes yeah. Guderian's 19 Corps yeah. with 1st Panzer and 10 Panzer and 2, two Panzer. Yeah. Absolutely, kind of working out the logistics to keep that speed going up. That you know, three days to the Mers, a crossing four, and all the rest, yeah. of it, and then keep it going beyond. With it's worked out absolutely to a, you know to the nth degree. E- everything yeah. you know, this this is a rucksack principle, the the, the backpack yeah. principle that you take everything with you. I mean, that that's almost sort of deep battle. Um, it's deep battle. And, and, you, and you have you have lorries with huge numbers of jerry cans who are going down the road and kind of handing out. You know, so when you run yeah. out of fuel, the fuel lorry's convoy comes down alongside you, hands over jerry cans so you can all refuel at the same time. You then dump them off your empties at a certain point. They're then collected yeah. again, taken back to the to the, the, the rear yeah. dump, filled up again, on you go. Every single bit of that is kind of worked out in, in the finest yeah. detail. And it works because the distances aren't great. And even in the Ardennes, 
the roads are quite good. And once yeah. they get to, and, and the distance they're trying to travel from the German border, and obviously in the build-up to getting to the German border from within Germany, yeah. that's not a problem yeah. because you can have as many fuel dumps as you want and you can have a whole stash of fuel dumps right on the Luxembourg-Belgian border yeah. because you can, because it's German territory, yeah. so there's no issue yeah. with that. And then once you go through, it, it, you know, the distances are actually, you know, to the MERS from the German border, it's like a, 120 miles, something like that. You know, yeah. it's, it's, so it's a, it's a decent amount, but it, it's perfectly okay. But once you then get across the Meuse and you're then charging pell-mell to the Channel Coast, it's France. So yeah. you've got lots of good roads. And because France is so automotive, you've got lots of petrol stations and you've got, <laughs> you've got all the mechanics that you need to support that. The big difference is that... And, and what then happens is after that, they kind of think... And also, sorry, the other thing that's really important is that... <laughs> they are given carte blanche to do what they want. So there is yep. no interference from Hitler at this point. Everything well, changes yep. by the time they're planning for Barbarossa because they've done what they've done. It's expected of them. And they've got hubristic. They've got overconfident. They've got complacent. Yep. And, and yep. they have not taken into account the massive, massive differences but of fighting in the Soviet Union. We need to take a quick break now. Um, we'll be back in a second. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And we are talking about Operation Barbarossa. Why is, the, why is it that they take doing this seriously in France? It's because the French in the First World War blunted, stopped the Prussian way of war working. They defeated them, essentially. Because if, you, if the point is you do exactly. it with manoeuvre and encirclements, the French actually had a solution to that. So they're taking the French 
really, really, really seriously. Yes. By plan by planning it properly, because the First World War, after all, you know. On the Eastern Front, they do do these big encirclements, and t- it's the myth, you know it's the myth of Tannenberg and all that, which is yep. which goes in which goes into attitudes in the German general staff or people who were present. You know, Halders in in uh, on the Eastern Front in 1917 when the Russians collapse. So his experience is of the Russians collapsing, whereas whereas the you know the 1940 plan is is because you've got to take France seriously because actually France effectively. <laughs> defeated the Prussian way of doing things and forced them into the it forced them into a ruinous stalemate that Germany knows it can't afford whereas they're thinking the eastern front will just do what we did last time but with with on steroids because we're invincible because we defeated France and because we've we've invented mobile warfare and you but you've got people like Guderian saying well they're just savages people you know Guderian yeah, people who supposedly who better. The, the intellectual of the of armored warfare Guderian who you know that never that never seems to get lumped into his reputation as the as the you know he's the brilliant the brilliant lance of the of the uh, German advance in 1940. Well, he's he's just the same as everyone else when it comes to how he regards the Eastern Front. And I, what I think, I mean, what I think is so fascinating in this book is you get this obviously groupthink is a thing that 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 occupies the way the Germans think an awful lot. Yeah. Um, but they're all full of groupthink, but they're also doing this thing. And I think this is really, really interesting. It's quite clear that quite a lot of them are, um, are making sure that they aren't the people who objected to the plan the way that they did in 19, in the run up to 19, the summer of 1940. Because there's a whole lot of people in the German army who yes. run up to the 19, the well, summer von, of even von Kleist, who's kind of. Exactly. You're going, well, this all, you're going, this is never going to work. Um, we're we're biting off more than we can chew here. It's absurd. You've overbalanced things with giving it all to the the punch through the the Meurs and all that in the Ardennes. And and so they're all basically arse covering in preparation for the miracle that they think is going to occur on the Eastern Front. It's amazing Uh, that that's going on. Listen to this, okay? So this is from an after-action report, a logistical after-action report in Panzergrube Kleist. Between the 10th of May and the capture of Calais, which is on the 26th of June, there was not a single supply crisis that could not be resolved with the resources of Group von Kleist without in any way interfering with command functions. They think they've solved it. And that they is... think they solved it. And now they think they're not going up, a first, up against a first class opponent. So, so they, they think all we've got to do is do the same thing we did last time. Even though you look at the scales and, the, and you know, this is the Guderian's book about tanks before the war. He estimates there's 10,000 tanks in the Soviet army. And Hitler's supposed to have gone, if I believed the figures in those books, I'd never have gone to war with the Russians in the first place. And you think you're all you've all talked yourselves into how brilliant you are. And and the, and you you know, you're applying the lessons of France to a completely different. Yes. Absolutely. And, and, and it cannot be stressed enough that France is a modern society with the most motorised vehicles in Europe of any country, of any country, whereas the Soviet Union is not and doesn't have that infrastructure. And I mean, we, we should talk about George Thomas and his and his and his, and his financial um, planning. But but it's also worth talking about Adolf von Schell who is the 
plenipotentiary general of motor vehicles. And his background is, is, is a, as an infantry officer and as a trainer of men. And he's, he's, you know, he's like four times wounded in the First World War. He's much decorated. He even goes over to the United States in the early 1930s and does a stint as an instructor at Fort Benning. And writes a book called Infantry Tactics or something like that. I can't remember what it's called. You know, and suddenly in 1938, he ends up being the man in charge of military vehicles. And what he realises immediately is there's just too many types because there is no mass production in Germany. And they're still on that, that kind of lots of um, sort of cottage industry in the motor industry. So, so yes, there is BMW and Mercedes and, and Hall, but there's lots and lots of workshops. There's lots of different people. And by the time, by the time he gets, he's got 131 different types of truck in 1939. And he goes, OK, well, what we need to do um, is, uh, yeah, and, the, and there's 1,367 different types of trailer. Because basically they're just sort of being made in people's backyards and in village forges and stuff. Yeah, so it's all completely different. The trailers are not such a big, big deal, but the trucks is because, of course, every truck has a different cut of gasket or distributor cap or you know what you know every bits of it there's no consistency whatsoever and so it says what we really need to do is we really need to cut it down so that we've only got you know we've got as few different types of trucks as possible preferably only one type and by 19, 1939 they've got 23 different types of trucks which is still you could argue at least 20 too many and, and it just turns into and and, and Poland reveals all sorts of problems, you know, and he says, basically, I mean, there's always the thing about, you know, if Poland had gone another couple of weeks, you'd have run out of ammo. If Poland had gone another couple of weeks, they'd run out of vehicles. That's frustrating. So he's desperately trying to kind of work out what to do. And he and he sets up the home motor motor vehicle pool organisation, which is the Heimat Craft Far Park organisation. Uh, and he basically just requisitions 50 percent of the civilian motor workshops. But it's just he's always on 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 a kind of sort of massive massive uphill struggle to well, try hiding and, to nothing, isn't he? Because, hiding to nothing because what he's not able to do is standardise and comb through, and there isn't time. No, I mean, and, and, and at the same time, there's a rubber shortage. And I, yes. I think what, what what's really amazing is is that they're literally waiting for rubber. They're waiting on people who manage to break the blockades. Yeah. So that so that there's no there's no predicted uh, flow of rubber. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're hope they're basically they've got their fingers crossed and what's really interesting is is this all this bad news comes to Halder and he kind of goes ah, dad yeah that'll be all right that'll sort itself out and there's a lot of that'll sort itself out going yeah. on in the planning in the in the planning for Barbarossa it'll be all right short campaign it'll be fine don't worry about it yeah I mean I think I think you know we've talked about this often before you know about the you know the, the oil they're going to get in the Crimea and and that that'll uh, in the Caucasus, rather, and how if they, once they get that oil, everything will be all right. You sort of think, and they're going into Russia for the stuff. That is one of the reasons they're going to Russia is to get their hands on raw materials and so on. Yeah, but how long? How long would that take to turn around? How long would, you know? I mean, it, it, it's a question. It's a question that, that, that's highlighted by what's happening right now in Ukraine. How how long will it take? Would it have taken to turn? any of the places they'd conquered into somewhere useful and productive for them. Because after all, France's economy goes straight down the plug hole. Um, uh, you know, but, but by the autumn of 1940, the French economy is basically completely falling on itself. Doesn't work any, doesn't work any, anymore. And in fact, you know, the point is that the Euro, European integrated economy works when it's integrated and when it, everyone's trading with each other peaceably. And the minute it isn't, it, it collapses, basically. So that the idea that you conquer places to get stuff, which is part of the 
raison d'etre can't deliver. You don't, can but, but well, you can as long as you don't destroy everything as you go. Well, obviously, and, and, and and you've got some buy-in from the occupied territory. Well, there you are. I there mean, the point are. about France is really interesting because actually the damage is really really minimal. I mean, yeah. you know, the great cities aren't destroyed, the factories aren't destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is, so they've got they've got workforce, they've got infrastructure. There shouldn't be any yeah. issue whatsoever. Yeah. The problem is, is what the Germans don't have is lots of vehicles because they're not yeah. very automotive, as we've talked yeah. about at Finitum in the past. Yeah. Uh, and because what they do is they just go, right, give us all your cash, give us all your supplies, give us all your coal, give us all your food, give us all your oil reserves, and we're going to half inch all your all your vehicles. Yeah. So. All those perfectly intact factories just don't work anymore because they haven't got yeah. the stuff to make them work and they haven't got the, the workforce to be able to get yeah. to work and they haven't got yeah. the coal and they haven't got the oil. So yeah. that doesn't work. But, but you know, if you go into the Soviet Union and you are generous to those who are, um, those who are conquered and you immediately get to work building factories and overseeing farms and, and, uh, uh, and are generous um, yeah. occupiers, then in Ukraine certainly you, would, you wouldn't have had any problem. But, of course, they don't do that. Um, I mean, just go back to Adolf von Schell and his in his yeah. in his problems. I mean, you know, at Barbarossa, HA Infantry Division, three different motorized infantry divisions, and one tank divisions are all entirely one hundred percent equipped with French vehicles. <laughs> Can you imagine being the quartermaster of that? So, 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 even well, even, even someone... in nineteen forty two. Even in you need someone from Alsace Lorraine, don't you, to to do it? <laughs> I mean, it's just it's, it's an absolute joke. And then you know that's in addition to British vehicles and German vehicles. So yeah. even by 1942, even by the middle of 1942, by the time Case Blue starts, the Germans have got in their inventory 1,371 different vehicles of varying kinds. And so what von Schall has done is he has. Um, Added into the whole process, yeah. a ten percent employment weight for spare parts. Yeah. Okay. In an attempt to fix the problem. In a, in a problem. <laughs> this is at the start. So we're anticipating yeah. we're going to need spare parts. So ten yeah. percent of my capacity of 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 trucks and whatnot and trains and yeah. all the rest of it is going to be devoted to spare parts. Oh, but by the middle of 1942, this has mm. risen to 40 percent. And the problem is that, well, that means you need to produce spare parts. But the problem is, is, is that by that point, you've had such an overwhelming loss of numbers that you're now spending more of your resources making spare parts than you are making new vehicles, which you need. So it's a sort of spiralling kind of web of, of, of mayhem. He's constantly battling uphill. He's he's yeah. you know he he's he's tried to streamline the German motor industry before the war from 1938 to to, to 1939 and into 1940. He's desperately trying to kind of streamline the whole thing, and he yeah. just can't do it. There's there is yeah. just simply not the state backing for taking over companies and and um, standardising everything. Yeah. So that just makes your you know from a quartermaster's point of view that just makes and, and supply point of view that just makes life very very difficult. So. First of all, you haven't got a sort of streamlining off the conveyor belt. Then you've got yep. this problem that you've got too many vehicles, which means you have, have lots and lots of parts. And yep. the whole problem that you've got lots and lots of vehicles is because you haven't got enough vehicles in the first place of one car. You know, you, 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 because yeah. of that lack of standardization, because you haven't got mass production, you're having to make do with lots of different types of vehicles. But because you've got lots of different types of vehicles, then that's completely screwing up your supply chains because you've got to have a thousand different types of gasket rather than one. Yeah. 
And yeah. you know, when you're when you you know when you've got three trucks um, breaking down, one of them you can sort of you know you can, you can go okay, right? We're going to write this one off, and we're going to take all the parts and use those parts. You can't yeah. do that because they're all different. Yeah. So. What happens with poor old Shell is, is you know, no one's listens to him. He does what he possibly can and does it very, you know, all things considered pretty well. He sets up these sort of multiple um, organisation, coercing kind of civilian operations. But then they get into the Soviet Union and civilian um, motorised vehicles have to exist alongside military ones as well. Yeah. And the problem he's got is is that as he's trying, you know, as more and more are breaking down, so the amount of... of of supply he needs to provide in as a proportion dedicated to spare parts rises yeah but yeah. that comes at a cost because you've got to make more spare parts and you've got to then deliver them to the front yeah yeah uh, and to, to those repair units well i mean it, and it just gets it? this sort of spiraling system where where just everything is just going to pot and i think you know yeah. what was just so fascinating about the style is when you look at you look at Second Panzer Group, uh, Guderian's four division Panzer Group, which is one of the you know the three main spearheads as as first, second, yeah. third Panzer Group. Those those are are the spearheads of of the, of the German army in Barbarossa. Yeah, and by the twenty ninth of July, so that's only kind of sort of five week, five and a half weeks after the start of Barbarossa. You know, Smolensk has fallen on the what is it was fifteenth of July, but they're still fighting in this. You know, Army Group Center is still fighting in that kind of Smolensk area. Yeah. you know, the pockets have only just been closed and all the rest of it. They've lost that. The Second Panzer Group is down by seventy percent. Yeah, you know, seven yeah. total losses or under repair, seventy-one yeah. percent. I mean, that's just incredible. So they have yeah. only thirty percent of the original strength. Given the way, given the way Barbarossa has been planned, um, and, and given, I, I, I don't mean, the, I don't mean the sort of, you know, the the um, the, the the stuff, the actual sort of written down stuff, just the spirit in which it's been done. There's absolutely no way that information can be brought back. You know, first of all, they know they know this is a problem. Halden knows this is a problem, um, but but is entirely um, prepared to turn a blind eye to it, isn't he? Yeah. Because he's he's just he's just not interested in um, delivering bad news to anyone. He's also, I mean, there's also the fascinating business of him going behind Hitler's back to use Hungary as a uh, jump-off point, and the Hungarians have said the Hungarian Hitler said absolutely not. We are not coming. At, we are not using Hungary as a staging point. We're not doing it. And Halder sets it up anyway, disobeys his orders, sets it up anyway, and builds that into the Barbarossa plan, which I think is quite, which is really, really interesting, given supposedly how this works is you do as you're told, you know, how the how OKW works is, is you've, you've, you've got your orders, you, so you plan accordingly. And that's the, that's the headquarters Halder claims to run, yet he himself is prepared to go behind Hitler's back. Because after all, he's expecting a victory, they're all expecting a victory, so they're all expecting when it comes out in the wash, um, you know, that, well, that was my genius idea. Well, well done, everyone. And they'll, they'll all get patted on the back rather than r- rather than actually being a problem. And so baked into Barbarossa is people lying to each other about, you know, even at the very highest level, people lying to each other about actually what they're going to do, lying to each other about, um, you know, the, the state of the, 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 the state of the here and the stuff that's available to it. So it's little wonder that, you know that that only a month in, whatever they're 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 suffering this kind of problem, is it? Yeah, I, I, and I mean, 
before we before we started recording this, you were kind of um, pointing out that extraordinary episode of York Thomas, General George, Tom, George Thomas. Yeah, amazing. And, and, and Thomas is, for those who don't know, George Thomas is the head of the economic division of the OKW. So that he, he's yeah. the head of the kind of economic departments, finance department of the German general staff. Yeah. And so he, in February, he, he draws up this plan of, of the kind of, you know, the financial implications and what they think they can do and, and you know, what they think they can gain from you know, yeah. the breadbasket of Europe and all the rest of it in Ukraine and, and what resources they can get. And basically he hands it in and everyone goes, no, 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 no. No, <laughs> yeah. sorry. Um, that's, uh, you know, th- th- that's not doable. You know, that- that'll that never get past Hitler. Yeah. You know, you need to you need to go back and, and, and rethink it. You know, and this is Keitel, isn't it? Keitel is the, is the, is the yeah. head of the OKW. Um, yeah. And so... Thomas goes back and redrafts it and, and basically delivers a kind of lavish report sort of saying yeah. it's all going to be fine, it's going to be great, and we're going to be able to get this, 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 and everyone goes, perfect. I mean, it's just, it's just insane. <laughs> but this is what happens when your commander-in-chief, you know, the top dog, lives in this sort of bunker complex where all he's, you know, people are only tell, tell him what he wants to hear. And where he I mean, believes that just this is will before Hitler's this... locked himself away, though, isn't it? Before yes, he's made definitely... himself unavailable to everybody. Yes, but he's still. But at this point, he's commander in chief, right? And he's still kind of removed from reality, and he's still only listening to what people, what he wants to hear. And and he's very into this idea that that of course they'll be fine I mean, because we will will it because we're Germans and we're superior. So I kind of sort of think this is what happens when you've got that kind of sort of bunker mentality when you're surrounding yourself by yes men and yeah. people are too I mean, terrified although although he's not yet here. actually locked in a bunker at this point so this is this is sort of this is sort of salad days hitler isn't it where he's where it's all working out and everyone they're, they're high they're they're high on their sort of blitzkrieg hype aren't they rather than necessarily later in the war where you know he'll bore you out and he's hiding in the in the eagle, you know. He's he's hiding in the wolf's lair. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a different phase in terms of. And the, the interesting thing with this is, you know, because after all, one of the things that happened post war is all of the generals kind of went, well, you know, if only he'd listened to us, um, if only Hitler had listened to us. The, the the problem was is he was a madman and he didn't understand how this all worked. And if he'd if he'd just listened to his generals, maybe we'd have won the war or or, or whatever. But this is the ge- the generals are doing this. This is what the generals are all doing. They're, they're all complete- they are, but they're all, but but what they are doing is they're telling they're, they're telling Hitler what he wants to hear because Hitler's a military genius in inverted commas, and because no one wants to be the kind of telling what he doesn't want to hear, yeah. and you know. George Thomas knows perfectly well what the economic realities of going into the Soviet Union are, but he's, but he's been told that's not going to cut it, so go and have a rethink. So he's rethought. And unlike, you know, Rokossovsky standing up to Stalin, you know, before Bagration, for example, no one's got the moral courage to stand up to him and say, actually, you know, this needs a more cautious approach. I mean, there's a great line in, in Stahl's book. He goes, in this case, General Thomas provided more dangerous encouragement to Hitler's already overall ambition. More importantly still, his study solidified Hitler's conception of the campaign, substantiating, as it did, his preference towards economic objective as a dual method of crippling the Soviet state and providing the resources he required to sustain his war. I mean, it's 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 bonkers. And but 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 if you if you have this incredibly sort of autocratic totally 
dictatorial kind of head of state saying this is how it's going to be and believe and someone who believes in you know whatever shortfalls there are you've got german will and german willpower will make it happen this sort of which is which is frankly fantasy isn't it i mean it's it's just la la land stuff but but it's sort of that's okay whatever it doesn't matter if we haven't got enough tanks we've got too many parts for our vehicles and it doesn't matter if the economics don't really work because we've got will yeah yeah. and you know who cares if there's no rubber yeah but yeah, because we'll just sort it out. We'll yeah. sort it out. You know, because I've I've decided now this is what's yeah. going to happen. Um, we've crossed that Rubicon. There's no turning back. So it's just got to happen. Mm-hmm. Make it happen. And of course, it all goes horribly, horribly wrong. Um, we've 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 talked for a long time. Um, uh, thanks very much for listening. I expect they might even break this one in two because it's gone on um, so long. Um, we will see you all soon. Thanks very much for listening. Bye for now. Cheerio.